Welcome. You're listening to WO Voices, a podcast series from Women in Optometry magazine. I'm Marjolyn Bailefeld, editor of Women in Optometry. We're delighted you could join us. Welcome. We're here with Dr. Viola Konevsky and Dr. Susan Resnick. Both of these doctors have private practices in New York City. Both are primary care practices with a strong specialty in contact lenses, and both are private pay. Dr. Resnick's practice establishment precedes her. It actually began as a private pay practice in 1958, but Dr. Konevsky converted to private pay. So we'll hear from both of them and their stories and their insights on how this works for them. Uh, Dr. Resnick, the practice you're in actually predates managed care. I would say about 20 years ago, when managed care was first kind of coming around, we toyed, you know, we just looked at it and we go, okay, well, what do we do? Um, And we just looked at one another and said, you know, let's stay the course. We have no reason to change. Uh, We'll watch it carefully and, you know, you know, hope, hope for the best and not just hope for the best, but be sure that we did everything to continue to permit the practice to thrive under our rules and and nobody else's rules. Uh, That being said, there was a period of about two or three years when we decided for our smaller office, um, our satellite office, uh, because we wanted to see if we could build the patient population there, we decided to just sign on with one medical insurer. Um, And that became a nightmare because we later found out that when you do that and they have your NPI number or your uh, TIN, your tax identification number, uh, they automatically assume you're doing that in both offices and they didn't kind of allow us to just take the insurance in one office. So it became a nightmare for our staff and uh, we then quickly dropped that idea after a couple after a couple of years. We were not making any money um, by new patients being brought in. We were losing money. Or it was much lower than the fees we had been collecting, but we're glad we tried it on a limited basis, and we then were reassured that we had made the right decision. Dr. Konevsky, your practice is newer, and you converted to a cash pay practice. How did that happen? That's correct. So I, correct, I wasn't born in 1958, so I, I don't, I wasn't around the time when um, Office, offices could work completely without any kind of insurances. As a matter of fact, I think at that time, if optometrists wanted to participate in medical plans, they could not. <clears throat> um, so when I started, uh, I had I was working for an optical when I first graduated as an independent contractor. And uh, when that office went corporate, I went out on my own. And the year after I did that, the economy crashed. So that was about 2007. So I was pretty terrified, as you can imagine. I had dropped a couple hundred thousand dollars into a complete cold start. Um, And so I actually signed up with every medical plan, every panel that would take me, and only one um, uh, vision plan, which was VSP at the time. Um, We did that Happily, I found that the economy crashing didn't do very much to my practice. My patients, many of my patients followed me from the optical where I had been working. And we worked about two years that way. 
becoming more and more frustrated with our VSP patients for the most part because they were price shopping, they were torturing my staff, which at that time I only had uh, really my husband and one other optician part-time with just shopping and not really looking for what was the best price. They didn't really care who, which doctor saw them. In any case, I would, I would come home and complain about this and find that I had no time for my cash paying patients to come into the practice. And my son, who was 12 years old at the time, one day over dinner said, mom, you know, I'm kind of fed up with your complaining about this all the time. It makes no sense what you're saying. If 80% of your VSP patients left tomorrow, you would still break even because the amount you're saying that they're reimbursing you and the amount of time it takes your staff to file those claims, he actually put a, made a little spreadsheet for me. Um, he, said, yeah, he said, you would look, you come out even, at, and that's if 80% of them leave. And I bet you 80% of them won't leave if they've already seen you once or twice. And I said, you know what? This is crazy. You're right. Let's just do it. So we dropped um, VSP first. Um, and sure enough, many of those patients did leave. Interestingly, two years later, which is the normal cycle for them to come in for their next checkup, usually they'll come in once a year, so they probably went somewhere else for a year. About two years later, they started trickling back in, and we would say right off the bat, we're sorry, we don't take any vision plans, so you'll have to pay out of pocket, as, and we'll submit it for you as an out-of-network provider. But um, they said, no, it's okay. We, we kind of, we didn't like where we went and we really missed your service and we don't mind. We'll just pay out of pocket and get reimbursed. And then slowly over the next, I would say eight years, we dropped every medical plan as well, except for Medicare, which I still take. And one other plan from which we accept only children. And so what we do is if I ever feel like there's a patient that can't afford our services, but really needs something medical um, in terms of contact lenses, medically necessary contact lenses, we do accept assignment for their insurance, but I do it when I want to, not when the insurance tells me I need to. And we negotiate our fees so that they're basically paying us our fees. And the way to do that is if you're providing very much specialty services, you can appeal to the plan and sit uh, under their no willing provider clause, which says that if you're within a certain area, there is no willing provider able to provide services that they need for what you know for their diagnosis then they will pay someone else who's out of network whatever their fees are to provide services for that child or ultimately if i can't get insurance to pay for something and i really feel like my patient needs something that they can't afford well guess what i write it off and i say you're welcome have a nice day when you have money you'll come back and pay and that's my choice that's exactly what we do viola we also do take medicare we don't accept assignment, but we are providers, and we do the same thing. We, we do quite a bit of pro bono work, but um, a willing provider as well. So it seems like uh, you and I are on the same page with that. That's interesting. And Dr. Konevsky, has your practice grown as much as you would have anticipated in these years? We have grown um, by about 12% every single year since we opened uh, with no regard for the economy. I mean, I, I've actually tracked it. I, I took a business course at one point that uh, New York City runs for physicians to help small private practices thrive because they're, we're losing private practices in every specialty by the day. Uh, and I was very pleased to see that my practice was growing 
faster than most private practices generally grow in any field. It doesn't matter. And optometry is not that different from every other field. It sounds like obviously there are financial benefits, but Dr. Resnick, is it purely uh, an increase in per patient revenue or are there other financial and intangible benefits to having a cash pay practice? Well, I, I would actually argue that while the financial is what, you know, kind of motivates you and in the end keeps you going, the rewards are far greater and it's the intangibles. It's not having to answer to anybody. I mean, for me, one of the reasons I chose to be a professional was to be my own boss. And if I was going to have my own practice or be a partner in a practice, but then have somebody over me, you know, a managed care overlord, well, that didn't, wouldn't have achieved what I wanted in terms of professional independence. Um, and I'm not saying it's for everybody. Um, I certainly don't want to be, you know, proselytizing. Um, uh, you know, these things have to be thought out carefully with um, advice from trusted advisors, um, accountants, lawyers. And I don't think everybody should just go out tomorrow and, you know, drop all of their plans. I mean, Viola and I are just two examples of how it can work. I think it needs to be done in a very um, careful manner, well-planned out manner, methodical manner. Uh, and I don't think it's all or nothing. I think that um, you can maintain relationships with um, third parties that are clearly beneficial or that fulfill a niche. Um, there are a lot of ways to do that. I've never had to ask permission to prescribe a contact lens, to perform a technology, uh, to write a prescription for a drug. Um, that's not to say that I don't ask the patient's permission, and we certainly do it in concert with the patient's um, clinical condition, with their financial condition, with their willingness to prioritize um, their eye care over something else or their ability to do so. But we, in the end, we don't have somebody else giving a stamp of approval or disapproval. Dr. Konevsky, do you reconsider the equation every year or is this a, a path that you're on and, and moving along steadily? I, I, I do. I tend to be very careful every year in terms of tracking our profit margins and seeing you know, which lines are both in ophthalmics and um, services are profitable to us. Uh, but I, I do have to echo what Dr. Resnick said in that the emotional benefits of doing this are vast for both myself and my patients. You know, for instance, I know that many of my colleagues complain that their no-show rate is outrageous. You know, they'll have sometimes 30% of their patients not show up on a given day. And to me, I don't even know what I would do with that. Um, it, and I've looked at the data across the fields. The highest no-show rate is among uh, managed care patients and self-pay, cash-pay patients have something like a 1% no-show rate, which is shocking to me. You'd think, you know, these are the people that are paying cash. They, they should feel entitled to do what they want, but they don't. They're very respectful of my time. Um, it's a different kind of patient that comes in that's willing to lay out cash because they think that your services are worthwhile and they're seeking out your opinion. You're not just another name that they found off some website that they don't care if they never see you again. Interesting. Do you think it's your demographics or is there something about the character of a cash pay patient? I really do think it's something about the way people value services. When you give away something for free or when it's perceived to be free, it has very little value. And when people come in 
and they're using their vision plan or their medical insurance and they perceive, you know, they don't have to lay out anything, even not even a copayment or, or a small copayment. They just don't see the value in the service. They, th- they for some reason, perceive it as you're just working for their insurance company. They don't see you as an individual entity that is worth spending time or or making an effort to show up for or listen to for that matter. My patients behave better too when you know they follow my instructions better when they're paying for the advice. Can I just pipe in here? I just want to add just dovetail to that question. It's a great question. Um, but let's um I wanna just bring up a point that I think is important. I think there are enablers within our um, profession, um, and I don't mean uh, like alcoholics. Um, um, what I'm saying is that one of the reasons that both um, Dr. Konevsky and I have been able to do this is that each of us has a subspecialty within our primary care um, clinics. So one of the things that I always recommend when I'm mentoring, if, if a doctor is starting up a practice or considering transitioning to um, private pay or cash pay is to be sure that they really are special in some way other than just being them. We all know we like to think we're special and we all obviously try to provide the best care and give the patient the best experience within the office and, and that's a given. But if you can bring into your practice some sort of niche or subspecialty, something that they can't get down the road or that managed care doesn't cover, that then becomes a magnet to your practice. And then it goes into everything that Dr. Konevsky just described. And one more comment. I I found in the years that I was taking these insurance plans and therefore having to short in order to fit in all the patients and to make any kind of income, I had to shorten my exam time. So my slots were scheduled, you know, as many practices do then every 15, 20 minutes, and some practices schedule them every 10. I found that I was losing that what I thought to be special about my practice, about myself, about my ability to think on my feet. I just, in my own eyes, I was becoming worthless. And so you wind up providing a service that you don't care about. The patient can therefore uh, change to someone else the next year. Every, everything about that relationship that was special between a patient and, and a doctor is lost. And if you ask most people, what do they miss most about their old time primary care practice or their, or their doctor, is that personal relationship, the time to come in and be able to sit and look at your doctor in the face and speak to them and tell them what's wrong so that they can figure out what's wrong with you. And that's what I was missing with the managed care. And that's what I can have when I charge an appropriate amount for each exam slot so they don't have to shove, you know, 60 patients into one day. I realize you can't measure a negative, but do you feel like you were on a path to burnout with the way that you were going? Oh, absolutely. I was coming, my, 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 my blood pressure was rising. I was, all, I was about to go into hypertensive meds because I was so stressed with the whole thing. And things are better now? Things are lovely now. I love, I really love my profession. I love my work. I, for the, you know, 99% of the time I love my patients. I can focus on uh, seeing more kids because they take much, much more time. And I don't mind spending an hour. I don't mind booking a patient for an hour when I know that they're going to, they're going to take a lot of my time. So I can sit and play with them and get them to do what I need them to do instead of feeling stressed all day long. Dr. Resnick, you've been practicing in that environment, but do you feel that this 
method is is less stressful? Oh, oh, definitely. Um, we have always um, treated our practice as a boutique or concierge practice. So. Uh, patients have my cell number. They ha- we have a 24-hour service. We have associates who are also available. Um, we will give same-day appointments unless there's absolutely some reason we can't, which is unusual when you have you know five doctors. Um, so we really do cater to our patients' needs. Um, the, the word no really never comes up in, in our practice. We've been able to bring on two associates, so we are still a high-volume practice, but by charging the fees we charge, um, everybody doesn't mind working really hard. That motivates you. Plus, we are a practice heavily into delegation, so not only do we have a lot of doctors, but we have... We, we actually have about two to three technicians working side by side with each doctor at the same time. So we're able to see the volume we want, but also get the fees we want. So it's a, you know, it's a win-win situation. So here you two are, like-minded practice owners in a very large city. How, how did you come across each other? So here's how we came across one another. Um, on ODs on Facebook, I happened to join a few years ago and I noticed... Um, I was intrigued with Dr. Konevsky's responses. I thought to myself, boy, she's got a <laughs> sense of humor like me, a little. <laughs> and, um, and then I texted her. I, I, I private messaged her on the side one day about something. And then we kind of became, I guess, Facebook friends, whatever. And then I had this. And then over the last couple of years, she and I have both been piping in rather vigorously when we see these very, I'll use the word, depressing threads come up where practitioners, you know, there's just been an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with every, at every turn, um, you know, with every vertical integration that's happened with VSP, with Warby Parker now taking insurance. I mean, it's if, if, you, if you live in New York, you know what the word <laughs> fetching is. <laughs> and so there's more and more complaining. Um, and, and rightly so. And I, I, so a few months ago, I said, I'm so sick of this. Let's get on a web, a, a webinar and just see if we can help these people in some fashion. And the project you created then is a webinar, Dare to be Different, Achieve Independence from Managed Care. It's going to run live on March 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern on OD Wire. People can register there, and if you can't tune in live, it will be archived there. Yes. So she and I are really going to, you know, shoot from the hip as we are now with you. Um, And, you know, like it or not, people are going to hear what we have to say, and it's going to be controversial, but we think it's going to be fun. Um, Dr. Koneski had a wonderful idea of how to set it up. Um, She suggested we have people write in questions before so that we're going to pick the top 10 questions and make sure we answer those live and then people will be typing them in. And so we, we're going to make it as interactive as we can at the same time, providing concrete suggestions and methodologies. And um, that's how we got to know each other and how this project came around. I was actually aware of Dr. Resnick and her practice for years before she knew who I was uh, because her, her practice is quite famous in New York as being the primary contact lens specialty practice. And I was aware of her even as a student. Um, and the way I became really more aware of, of her was when I started taking VSP, I would occasionally see one or two of her patients, which is, by the way, in New York is a very rare thing. If you have a really good doctor, 
you're never going to see their patients. No one else is ever going to see those patients. It's very rare to see a patient from a practice that I know is a good practice. I see lots of patients coming in from Dr. X and Dr. Y and Z that are, you know, take this insurance and that insurance, but hardly, I mean, I can maybe count on, on one hand the number of patients I've ever seen coming from Dr. Resnick's practice. And they're always coming in because, well, I wanted to see if maybe you took take my insurance because she doesn't and they're fairly expensive. And I'd see that on the schedule and be like, oh God, no, there's no way I can do better than she did. If they can't see with her contacts, I'm so doomed, it's not funny. <laughs> but that is actually how I, I was first aware and, of her. And, and then they get to her office and find out she's more expensive than me. So it's a great thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they go right They go right across Central Park and they're back in my office. <laughs> That's exactly right. The other added benefit of um, going out on my own and dropping all the requirements of managed care was that I found that I had much more time to spend um, on seminars, on CE, traveling for CE, traveling to uh, AOA meetings, and participating more in organized optometry, which I think is crucial. It has actually turned out to be a fantastic referral source for my practice from other practitioners. And I think it's very important for people to have time in their professional careers to participate in their profession more than just going to work and coming home at the end of the day. If someone were to ask you, how can I become a cash pay practice? What are the top few points they should consider? I mean, the, the first, I think, most important thing to do is really look at the plans you take. And most doctors will have a very good gut feeling about which ones they hate the most. So the first thing you do without even looking at numbers is drop the one that drives you the most crazy. If they're not paying you, if the patients are annoying and not showing up, if what they do pay you is long delayed and much too low to be worth your time, if their labs are giving you a huge headache and your opticians are griping about it, drop it. You don't need to be that annoyed. See how that works. Wait a little bit. Write your patients a nice letter. Just, I, I wouldn't do it all at once. It's not, it really isn't an all or nothing proposition. You start like that. That would be my number one. You have a number two, Susan? <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the, I would also look at, um, you have to do a lot of soul searching. And again, and this is, you know, to stress, this is not for everybody. I think you brought up, um, Marge, you brought up the idea of demographic. Uh, I'm thinking more in terms of geography and locale at this point. You really have to know your area. I mean, if you're in an industrial area where, you know, and I'm not going to name cities per se because I'm not all that familiar with them. But if you're in an area where it's, uh, I'll use the word, like heavily unionized or there are big um, corporate or commercial employers that have aligned with a managed care plan and you're seeing, you know, 60% are coming from this one program, you, you don't want to, you know, cut yourself out of that. But what you do want to do is you can keep on those plans, but add services that the managed care doesn't cover. Um, you can have your cake and eat it too. So, you know, start to treat dry eyes, start to use proprietary technologies in terms of your um, spectacle corrections, start to introduce specialty contact lens or vision therapy or myopia management. In other words, it's not all about subtraction, it's about addition as well. How does that resonate with your experience, Dr. Konevsky? The other thing that happened when I dropped all these um, plans was I was able to add technology to my practice. Um, and I really have been freed. I feel like if I need a technology, I just add it. I don't have to worry about how much is it going to cost me? What's, you know, what's the return on this service? The return is not always measured in dollars and cents. 
Um, but in f- my freedom to practice to the best of my ability and to provide the top care to my patients, the, the state of the art care that, that I can do to my patients. Um, you know, just for example, I wanted to add an endo cell counter and I did, it was like not a big deal. I bought one and I added it and you can say, well, you know, you can probably fit contacts without it. It's not, you don't need it immediately. And some people fit scleral lenses perfectly well without it. But I like it. And I actually take endo counts on every single new pediatric fit that I do. And I track those patients over the years to see if the, even the normal soft lenses that they were are causing any damage at all to their corneas. And that's a service that my patients really appreciate. And I get a lot of referrals just based on the fact that they are wowed by the amount of care I put into every single even simple fit. Most of my kids are referred in from ophthalmology um, or other optometrists for either complicated fits or even if it's a new fit. That fit takes a lot of time in terms of teaching. You have to, in terms of my, first of all, setting up that kid for the rest of their life with good habits so that we don't have issues of their sleeping in their contacts or abusing their contacts later on and uh, educating their parents about their contacts and teaching them how to get them in and out when dealing with all the drama that goes along with a 12-year-old girl or a 10-year-old girl getting contacts in their eyes, including fainting. And I mean, you name it, we've got it. We've got two fainters a day, easy. So I like to spend that time with them. I don't like to, I don't necessarily like to delegate everything to text. Uh, if it's a very young child, I need to teach the parents, often both parents and a caregiver, how to get the lenses in and out of that child's eyes so that they're never stuck if one parent isn't home or if the caregiver isn't home, that no one knows how to deal with an emergency. Um, So yes, that takes a lot of time. Well, Dr. Konevsky and Dr. Resnick, enjoy your preparations for your upcoming March 11th webinar, Dare to be Different, Achieve Independence from Managed Care. And thank you so much for talking with Women in Optometry. Great. This is fun. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you join us again next time on WL Voices. If you'd like to be part of our podcast series, please contact us. You can email us at wovoicesonline at gmail.com or via our website, womeninoptometry.com, on Facebook at WL Magazine, or through Twitter or Instagram at WomenODs. See you next time.